Um, our community began in 1747. It was an offshoot of the Methodists and they were highly Pentecostal. It was an orally transmitted religion with nothing written down. And it was passed on through the generations, it comes to America in 1774, and it starts to codify itself when they begin a missionary tour in 1780. People start remembering things, things start to get written down haphazardly at first. Uh, that codifies us by 1816 into a, a pretty homogenous community and set of beliefs. Although again, as I have stated before, we have no creed and we've avoided that since the beginning, but we do have an understanding of faith. We believe in progressive perfection and revelation. Therefore, as things are revealed to the church, they progress and continue to evolve and change. We do not have things, well, I mean, we have our basic beliefs in, in God and all of that, but other than that, those things are always optional and open for change and renewal because otherwise it's death. So that's where we are. And so we're continuing in that progressive revelation. We pray. And I am also going to have to say goodbye to you because I am really late to the barn um, and the animals need to be fed. So peace to you all. It was very nice meeting everyone. God bless Thank you, you so much. All right. Take care. Good job. Have a great day. Um, Rabbi Cadden. Yeah, so Judaism has uh, evolved throughout its history. Uh, there are really two, I think, key moments that uh, led to significant transformation. The first was the destruction of the Second Temple in the year 70, uh, which led to a revolutionary change from a religion focused on the temple, on sacrifices led by priests, to a, a religion uh, focused on the word, scripture, the Torah, uh, uh, the rabbis and uh, synagogues and uh, uh, that incredible development, which the Talmud was an important part of. Uh, secondly, uh, really uh, was Judaism's response to the Enlightenment in more modern times uh, and a, a much more uh, open understanding of a lot of ways of approaching um, uh, religion, of approaching scripture. Uh, part of that, of course, is... Uh, uh, you know, how we now uh, understand uh, the evolution of uh, the writing of the Torah. Uh, and again, while some Jews still believe in the traditional understanding, many do not and understand that it, uh, you know, uh, evolved uh, as an oral tradition into various uh, uh, written traditions that were uh, uh, ultimately uh, written down uh, in about the fourth, third, fourth century before the common era and first uh, uh, presented to the people by Ezra. Uh, so, um, yeah, so those two things really led to, I think the most significant changes in Judaism uh, and uh, uh, how Judaism uh, is still observed today. Kind of, kind of add on to that, um, the, like how, how scholars have viewed the, um the, I guess, codification of, of, of the Torah was one of the things that I learned that I thought was really fascinating was that actually um, the very beginning of, of Genesis was actually written, um, was, it was actually not the first thing that was written. I can't recall what the first thing was written, but it wasn't like, like, like in the beginning, um, in the beginning God created and so forth. That, that, that um, kind of opening section of Genesis was actually written after another section, which I thought was just really interesting to learn that because I, that was a misconception that I had. But yeah, that being said, um, Ms. Uh, Christie. Yeah, so the Baha'i faith began with this, you know, this dispensation entrusted to two divine messengers from God, the Bab and Baha'u'llah. And today, that distinctive unity that characterizes the Baha'i faith, that there aren't sects and divisions, but it's one global faith, is 
it comes from uh, this explicit instructions that were given by Baha'u'llah about what should happen after his passing and um, that ensured this kind of continuity of guidance following his passing. So that line of succession we refer to as the covenant and uh, that when Baha'u'llah uh, passed, he appointed his son Abdul Baha to be who the community should turn to and who would be the sole interpreter of his word. And then from Abdul Baha to his grandson, um, Shoghi Effendi, who was called the guardian of the faith. And he assisted in carrying out Baha'u'llah's will as well to see that the Universal House of Justice be elected. So today, the Universal House of Justice is uh, the central governing body um, for the Baha'i community. All right, now to Afrasiab. Uh, how has your faith changed uh, and grown over time? So there are two um, kind of main divisions to, to the story about Islam. So the first is the period before the advent of the promised Messiah, um, which we refer to um, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed of Qadian, India. And then the other part is after um, he passed away um, and then his successor, successors, who we call the, the rightly guided caliphs. So if, if you look at the initial history of, the, of Islam, like when Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, passed away, um, there, is this, um, there is this period of four uh, really specific caliphates. So Prophet Abu Bakr, Prophet Umar, Prophet, uh, sorry, I used the wrong words. Um, the successors are caliphs, as, as we call them in Islam. So the first caliph was Hazrat Abu Bakr, the second one was uh, Umar radiallahu anhu, then Hazrat Usman, and then Hazrat Ali. And we see there was like um, a lot of different um, conflicts that happened during that time. The first one, like the really major one being at the death of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, where one of his um, really dearest friends, Hazrat Umar, was basically like walking around in the crowd and saying that, if anybody says that Prophet Muhammad has passed away, then I will just strike your neck. Like the the, the belief uh, that he shared was that since this is the last prophet of, of God Almighty, he cannot just pass away. And that's the time when the first caliph of Islam, Hazrat Abu Bakr, stood up and he recited some verses from the Holy Quran, the crux of which was that Prophet Muhammad was just a messenger of God. And if he passes away or if he dies, then would you just like turn on your heels and you would just like not uh, be a follower of, of what he taught you? And that's when there was uh, a consensus within the world of Islam that he was just a prophet. And that's also like one of the um, kind of a big um, religious gathering uh, where it was established that all of those um, Muslims that were present at that time, um, at that particular time, they believe that um, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, has passed away just as all the other prophets before him has passed, have passed away. And um, I just wanted to interject here a little bit about the uh, when I said the death of Prophet Jesus. In the Holy Quran, there are like at least 25 different verses where you can prove that Holy Prophet Jesus uh, passed away. And Holy Prophet Jesus is one of the most frequently mentioned prophets in the Holy Quran than any other prophet, um, except Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, to which Islam was revealed. And then we saw that there was like a, uh, there was a, a caliphate, then there were like a couple of different caliphates, then um, as per the prophecies of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, right after these first four um, caliphates, there was a, there was a era of basically um, kingship, where like the, the leadership ran into the families. So the person would be the caliph of, of Muslims and then his son would be the caliph and then their grandson and that's how it progressed. And then we also saw the big divide between Sunni and Shia Islam where the, the Sunni concept differed in, in the status of the fourth caliph, um, Hazrat Ali. 
and the Shias basically um, have a different view about who the fourth caliph was and who his status was. And that's where the big divide happened. Then there were like different uh, small factions. And up to this date, there are like around 72 or 73 different understandings of Islam. There are people who say, there are Muslims who say that we should only follow the Holy Quran and we do not need the traditions of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. On the other side, there are uh, sects in Islam that say that we can just follow the teachings of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him and his sayings, but Holy Quran is not applicable in this day and this, this age. Um, where my community comes in is the late 1890s uh, when uh, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed of Qadian basically uh, he first claimed that he's a revivalist as was promised by Holy Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him that after my death in the start of each century God will send somebody to revive the religion of Islam by revival it means that if something makes its way into Islam which is not part of the original code that God sent then it will be the duty and responsibility of that person to basically cleanse Islam of all those uh, impurities. And after 1400 years, there is going to be um, the second coming of Jesus among you, which um, a lot of a major part of the Muslim world still uh, believes to be the same prophet Jesus. So a lot of Muslims also believe um, that and also share the same belief with uh, with the Christian world that prophet Jesus was he ascended to the heavens with his material body and it is the same prophet Jesus who is going to come back. Uh, when Amir Zagulam Ahmed of Qadian um, basically um, claimed that he's going to be the second coming of Jesus, he also presented proofs and understandings both from the Holy Quran and from the Holy Bible uh, and from the sayings of the Holy Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him. And he proved uh, that Holy Prophet Jesus had passed away and whoever is to come as the second coming of Jesus is going to be a person who is going to carry the nature of uh, Prophet Jesus. So the same teachings of humility, love, um, serving mankind and, and bringing unionship and, and unity among mankind. And then after that, we have seen um, five different caliphs after the death of um, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed of Qadian. And we have seen the community to grow from um, this really little town in India called Qadian to more than 200 countries in the world. Um, we have a big presence here in the USA, in Canada, um, in Africa, um, in the late 1990s, mid 1990s, um, the Muslim, the MDM Muslim community started um, the 24/7 broadcast of the Muslim television MDA, which basically broadcasts um, teachings about the holy, about Islam, and also about the Holy Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him, and what the message of the um, MDM Muslim community is, is, which is really to cleanse Islam of all the impurities and all the wrong traditions that have made their way into Islam. Um, mainly um, not not um, the the first of which is um, the concept of jihad which uh, has a really which has had a really negative uh, negative outcome on islam where islam has been made synonymous with terrorism and extremism and a religion which really uh, promotes like these really uh, kind of strict ideologies um, another one being the status of women in islam and um, and so on and so forth so that has been like some of the evolution uh, within within the community. And uh, um, we are seeing like consistent growth. And uh, there are like a lot of uh, people who have joined the MDM Muslim community from a lot of different walks of life. Um, and that that is that is the stage where we are right now. Uh, we have around uh, around 20, 18 to 20 chapters within the USA. All right. And now on to uh, Karina. I guess my faith has grown over time, just as I like keep studying scriptures and especially the Book of Mormon and just like all these experiences and all stuff like that. 
and our religion, it kind of, the very beginning was with Jesus and uh, his apostles. And then after the apostasy, when he passed away and all the apostles eventually passed away as well, it started again where our religion believes that Joseph Smith received that revelation and then all that and that's where we believed the church was restored uh, and there are a lot of things that have changed um, the gospel has never changed the core beliefs nothing like that but some of the minor concepts did for example a little one is like we used to have three hours of church and now it's down to two hours um, just so we can have more at home time to study this new um, book thing um and another thing was polygamy that was really controversial back then but it did happen and for several years and then soon it kind of stopped because the government banned it so we don't do that anymore obviously and there are a lot of examples simple simple things grand things that have changed in our church but the true gospel has always stayed the same I just have to interject for a minute if, if you allow. And then I would just interject that as far as Islam goes, I think we should really draw a line between what religion is and what the followers of that religion are doing. So if there have been like the, the point of bringing this up is that Muslims in the world today um, are doing a lot of different things, um, a lot of things which are not uh, part of Islam or which are not part of the core Islamic belief. And we should really uh, we should really be able to draw a line on what they are doing versus what Islam says. As far as the evolution within Islam is, like for example, I'm, I'm still required to perform five daily prayers. I'm still required to fast during the month of Ramadan. So as far as the core beliefs in Islam go, um, nothing has changed um, as, as per the initial code of conduct, but there have been different divisions where people have kind of created their own understandings uh, where there has been like a, a change, but I would still say that as far as Islam as a religion is concerned, nothing has changed in the past 1400 years. And thank you for those extra, extra few minutes. Absolutely. Uh, also regarding like, um, the letter to saints movement. Um, I actually wanted to do a video on our channel that I have been working on for a little while. Um, but I haven't uploaded it yet called like, um, like comparing essentially early church doctrines. We're talking like the first several centuries of Christianity to LDS doctrines today. I thought that'd be pretty interesting because I was reading some patristic writings that kind of had some similar, uh, doctrines, uh, with the LDS view of heaven and so forth. But, uh, yeah, just, um, very fascinating, uh, similarities between the early church and the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, that being said, uh, Mr. Hausman. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can, I can answer real quick, and then we can hop off real quick. But uh, Jehovah's Witnesses have changed so much since their since their inception. If you peruse any um, XJW communities, like the one on Reddit, you'll see people saying like, uh, "This isn't this faith isn't even recognizable from you know the one I remember from ten or twenty years ago." Um, you know, uh, I'd, the one belief I'd say is most notice, notable is in the late eighteen hundreds, our um, the founder had basically believed that pretty much everyone was going to survive Armageddon, um, that the purpose of Armageddon was to overthrow, you know, Satan's hold over the world and reinstall God's dominion. Uh, but, you know, over time, they're now to, you know, everyone but baptized active Jehovah's Witnesses will, um, uh, will, will die in Armageddon. That's just one of just 
so many changes that they've uh, in their beliefs and their practices. Yeah, I remember uh, hearing that that the world was supposed to end in 1975, which people then tried to try to claim that it was actually only just some people in the church where the organization, whereas it was actually coming from the top down. But yeah, and also 1925, the saints were supposed to come back, the patriarchs. Uh, 1914, the world was supposed to end, but then of course, what were what happens? They could pin some other theology on that, but just absolutely fa- absolutely fascinating, but like not in a, not in a good way, um, in the least bit. Um, that, but very, very important to spread awareness about. All right. So to end, uh, all of this, we would like to ask, so we usually end all of our interviews with a question, like, what does it mean to be blank? Like, what does it mean to be a Mormon? What does it mean to be a Buddhist? Um, what does it mean to be a Muslim? So, uh, we're, I want to ask that question. What does it mean to be a member of your faith? And what do we need to know? Like essentially what is essential for, uh, let's say a secular person, a person who's never heard about your faith, what is essential for that person to know? Afrasiab, do you want to go? Um... So I, I think in, in one line, if I were to say, um, if somebody hasn't been exposed to Islam before, then Islam literally means peace. And the one thing that I would like somebody to remember uh, would be that if, if you are a Muslim, then you realize your creator, uh, who your creator is. And then you also realize your your duties towards your fellow human beings and you strive um, the most that you can to establish peace in your surroundings, in your family, in your friends, in the world. Um, and then the rest of the things are like the, the minute details that, that you can get into. Mr. Mr. Hausman, you want to go you want to go uh, want to go second this time? I, I would say and I'm really happy to have this opportunity because uh, I, I think that there should be more public awareness about, you know, we've had so many documentaries on. Um, on Scientology and Jonestown and Heaven's Gate, like there, there needs to be, you know, uh, the same level of, of exposure on this. Um, Jehovah, people need to know that Jehovah's Witnesses are a cult. They rely on childhood indoctrination. Uh, they isolate children from um, uh, from anyone that is not in in the faith. They pressure them into uh, baptism at young ages, like eleven or twelve. Um, and you'll make it clear that the only way to make your family, your community proud is to make that baptism commitment, which basically means also that if you ever, you know, break the you know core tenets of the, of the religion or you ever question it, or you ever don't believe it, that you will be shunned by your family, by that, the only community that you've, that you've ever been, been allowed to have. People need to know that, um, uh, that they reject blood transfusions, even if they're facing death. Uh, this includes if a child needs a blood transfusion, their parents have to have to refuse that treatment for their uh, for their children. Um, and you know, I would, the last thing I would say is the average witnesses that you meet, um, you know, knocking on your doors or, or standing out by a cart in public, like these are by and large just really sweet, innocent people that um, uh, that have never had the opportunity or the platform to really question their, their religion and their beliefs. So, you know, they, they shouldn't be treated like, um, you know, they're, uh, they're awful people or, or anything like that. Um, if there is an opportunity to help a Jehovah's witness who is questioning their faith, who, you know, needs some, some support, uh, as they're just transitioning or they're in a phase where they're asking questions, like just keep giving them that support. Um, you know, uh, keep, keep helping them to uh, 
you know, to have have courage and and have any kind of support outside the religion, so they can you know make those necessary life steps. No, I agree with you 100% that this is a topic that needs to be talked about uh, much more than it is talked about. Um, you know, potentially a few other podcast episodes could be awesome if you're if you're into that. Uh, and um, um, for for our for our podcast, and then also um, just yeah, I mean, if you look at if you if you the the blood transfusions because because during our our podcast episode you were talking about how when you were younger um, your mom might have to give you a blood transfusion and what that would mean that is that essentially all the Jehovah's Witnesses elders would like show up to you or your or your parent and try to convince you not to receive the blood transfusion because they're just they interpret a passage in I believe Exodus as don't eat blood equals for some reason don't take a take a blood transfusion that's one of the many things we could talk about um, so. Just um, uh, something that needs to be uh, uh, have something that needs to have more light shed on it. I will say, uh, Miss Stephanie, uh, Miss Christie, do you want to go now? Sure. Yes. Thank you. Sorry for my delay. <laughs> I think one of the things I like to quote when talking about what it means to be a Baha'i is uh, it says to be a Baha'i simply means to love all the world, to love humanity, and to try and serve it, to work for universal peace and universal brotherhood. So the Baha'i teachings talk about the, the world being one, God being one, the world's, God's religion being one, that all of the world's faiths are, are united in their uh, in coming from him as its origin and, and that they all are striving for unity and peace. Uh, so to be a Baha'i simply means to you know, strive to follow those teachings and put them into to practice in your life and, and, and in your community. All right. Um, who has not yet Karina. gone? Karina. Karina. Yes. I think it's just important to know that like God wants you to be happy and wants you to be successful and make good choices and just live a good life. And I think in our church, um, we just want to help and serve everyone kind of like Miss Christie was saying, no matter who they are, no matter the gender, religion, nationality, because God loves everyone the exact same. And so we're taught to love everyone the exact same. I think that is an incredible way to end it. I think that definitely um, that was a, a, an excellent culmination of all the things that were that were said. Um, that being said, I like to say that being said a lot for some reason because I just I picked it up from Waddle the But anyways, um, that being said, again, uh, thank you so much, every single one of you who uh, represented your faith here today. Um, and uh, this was an, I think this was an incredible first season. I had so much fun, and uh, I definitely uh, hope to, to stay in contact with all of you for uh, any planned future episodes you want to do uh, for season two, which I hope to basically be a more in-depth dive into some of the concepts of the various uh, faith, faiths that you have represented uh, and explained an overview of um, in all of our past season one episodes. That being said, uh, this has been the Godcast. I am uh, Xavier. I'm Rylan. And I'm Balin. And you can all just say your names at the end, because that's our tradition. I'm Freshia. <laughs> I'm James. I'm Karina. I'm Stephanie. Awesome. There we go. All right. What a great way to end season one. Um, and we uh, and uh, stay uh, stay tuned for planned future episodes in season two. <laughs>